Imagine a mother's worst nightmare. Her two-year-old daughter goes missing and the world is watching her every move. She was perfect. But as the investigation unfolds, it becomes clear that there's more to this story than meets the eye. There's something wrong. I found my daughter's car today, and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car. Okay, what is the three-year-old's name? A tangled web of lies, deceit, and dark family secrets emerges, leading to one of the most controversial trials of the century. In today's episode of The Casual Criminals, we delve into the twisted saga of Casey Anthony, a young mother accused of an unthinkable crime. Can you tell me what's going on a little bit? I'm sorry? Can you tell me a little bit what's going on? My daughter's been missing for the last 31 years. As we peel back the layers of this true crime mystery, you're going to be left questioning everything you thought you knew about the guilt, the innocence, and the elusive search for the truth. Was she gonna drink champagne tonight? I don't think so. Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your casual criminalist, Simon, welcome. Uh, the format of the show, if you're brand new here. Well, first of all, welcome. It's great to have you. Is uh, one of my writers, in this case, Matthew Markham, to give him his full name. Matt. Matt something. So nobody just refer to him as Matt. Uh, Matt has written me a script, the story of Casey Anthony, a pathological liar's guide to destroying the lives of everyone around you. <laughs> Allegedly. Because as Matt has left, he's even got it in like big red text. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see that. Um, as of recording of this episode, he says, Casey Anthony was not proven guilty. I make this clear in the intro. He says, this is a note to me, but I'm reading it anyway. anyway. But there's also a disclaimer halfway this, <laughs> through the script. Also, this episode is long. So if you're looking for a good time to stop recording and take a break. Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. That is truly a note for me. Thank you, Matt. So yeah, I probably will take a break. Jesus, this is long. Okay, settling in. Ah, I got a coffee but it definitely won't last so yeah remember simon lots of alleged leads for this one in america you would be hard-pressed to find someone who doesn't already know the story of casey anthony in fact she is so infamous that even mentioning her name can invoke a snarl of disgust from those around you and this is because she's still widely regarded as the person solely responsible for her own daughter's death Widely regarded, not regarded by a court of law. Yet, allegedly, you know. <laughs> Remember, we're very clear about this. Also, I've heard of Casey Anthony, but I haven't followed this story, and I'm not American. So uh, this is uh, mostly new to me. So let's go. But why do so many people feel this way? Casey was not proven guilty in a court of law, and the evidence against her was made available for all to see during a televised trial. So how did the jury and the general public come to such vastly different conclusions? Um, televised trials. Sorry, this is already a long episode. I know we're already like deep in tangent world. But televised trials is weird, America. Like, what's that about? This isn't entertainment. This is people's lives. It's like, what's next? Televised consultations with your doctor. Okay. That probably exists, doesn't it? There's probably like channel 709, like shit reality shows. And it will be there. That's dark. Oh my God. I can just imagine it. It'd be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have the medical consult for free, but the producer has to say that it's an interesting disease and it has to be televised. Oh my God. That would be savage. Please no one make that. If that doesn't exist and you're a television producer and you're listening to this show and you're like, 
Genius idea, fact boy. Never make this show you are. Casey herself said that she was the victim of an overzealous police department that was only ever interested in wrapping up a case that had garnered national media attention. She says that nobody ever cared about the truth because everybody was obsessed with telling a good story. So, are we all wrong about Casey Anthony? Have we all been misled? What was the truth that she tried to give the police? In today's episode of The Casual Criminalist, we'll be attempting to answer these questions. We examine the weeks leading up to Casey Anthony's arrest, her trial, and the fallout that ensued once the verdict was delivered. So sit back, relax and get ready to hear the story of how one woman's lies thrust her entire family into the national spotlight as everyone searched for a child that she knew was already dead. The 911 call. On the 15th of July, 2008, inside a single family home nestled within the heart of the Sunshine State, Florida, a frightened and hysterical woman dialed 911 to report that her granddaughter had been missing for an entire month. I know exactly what I was doing on July 15th, 2008. Well, not exactly then, but I had just graduated from university, <laughs> finished my exams, waited on the results that came later in the year. And it was that sweet, sweet summer, you know, where you've left university and you're like, well, what do I do? I, it was probably not the sweetest summer. The sweetest summers are probably the ones where it's like, what do you have to do? Well, next September, I go back to university. And after leaving university, you're like, oh God, what do I do? Guess I better find a job and enter the workforce. Across town, Orlando police dispatcher answered the call and began probing for information. However, the woman was having trouble organizing her thoughts. Frantically, she said, oh, My daughter finally admitted that the baby's in the store. I need to find her. Your daughter admitted that your ba the baby is where? The dispatcher asked for clarification and the woman responded, what are you saying? My daughter's missing for a month. This is just, it seems very garbled. The next words that came from the woman's mouth were harrowing. They surely sent a chill down the operator's spine. There's something wrong. I found my daughter's car today, and it smells like there's been a dead body in the damn car. Okay, what is the three-year-old's name? Kaylee. Oh, my Lord. Do you think uh, 911 operators get chills down their spine, though? Because I saw that movie. I can't remember whether it was good or not, where Halle Berry plays like a um, 911 operator. And I just kind of feel like they must have to deal with all sorts of shit all day. And they're just like super professional about it, right? They'll just be like, okay, we'll send someone out to your location immediately. Can you give me any more details or talk to me? You know, this kind of stuff. It's like, you're professional. So, and you've probably heard some shit, haven't you? <laughs> the woman was Cindy Anthony, the mother of Casey Anthony, and the missing child in question was Cindy's three-year-old granddaughter, Kaylee Anthony. Oh my God, did you all have to have C's? This makes it very confusing. So we've got Cindy, the grandmother, Casey, the mother, and Kaylee, the granddaughter. The interaction that I've just described to you is the first part of a phone call that lasts just under five minutes and only grows more disturbing the longer you listen. It is also the third phone call that Cindy Anthony has made to the police that day. After hearing Cindy say the words, dead body, the 911 operator took down personal information from Cindy and asked to speak with the child's mother. In recording, Cindy's muffled, distant voice can be heard shouting at Casey, telling her the police need to speak with her. Casey can also be heard saying, I don't have anything to say to them, before being handed the phone and reluctantly greeting the officer. The confused and somewhat irritated dispatcher asked Casey to explain what was going on, and in a steady and emotionless voice, Casey replied, Oh my, how old is your daughter? Like, wait, they said it was her daughter's car, but no, this was the mother's car. How old is 
the daughter. Anyway, after once again pressing for information, Casey confirmed the details that her mother had given moments earlier. She said that Kaylee's babysitter, a woman named Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez, had kidnapped Kaylee, and the child had not been seen since July the 14th. Since that day, Casey said she had only spoken to Kaylee one time for about a minute, and after that call, Zenaida's phone had been disconnected and nobody had been able to contact her since. The dispatcher asked why Casey waited an entire month to call the police, and Casey admitted that it was a stupid mistake and that she been searching for Kaylee herself, using her own resources and trying not to involve the police. Oh my lord, what are you up to? If my kid went missing for like 20 minutes, I was in Marks and Spencer's the other day, just, you know, in the little food section, and my, this was like several months ago, and I'm like there with my daughter, we're wandering around, and then she goes into a different aisle. She just like, I look away for like five seconds, and then she's wandered into a different aisle, like, oh my gosh! It's like just that moment of panic where you're like, oh! And it's like, okay, she's just around the corner. Relax, fact boy, everything's fine. <laughs> Get a leash or something. Oh my lord! Uh, so I'd be, I'd be calling the police in like five minutes, <laughs> literally. If that was, if it was five minutes, I don't know if I'd be calling the police, but I'd be like, yo, management, lock down the store or whatever you do in these situations, please. Now go, please. God, I don't like thinking about that. That's really unpleasant. It's so terrifying. God, I never realized, like, I guess I realized this before I was a dad, but then being a dad is so much more f***ing real. And it's like, I feel that panic, like that anxiety inside me, even though that situation is not happening right now. God. At this point, for the first time since the call began, Casey sounded genuinely worried as she told the dispatcher that officers had arrived at the scene. The call was then quickly ended. The interrogation room. Later that same day, at a little past 4 p.m., Detective Yuri Merrick of the Orange County Police Department sat Casey down inside an interrogation room and began to question her. Casey had already spoken briefly to the police at the scene, but this was Detective Yuri's chance to get a full statement and check for any logical inconsistencies in her story. Although the investigation had barely begun, Merrick was already suspicious of Casey because of how long it had taken her to report Kaylee missing. Yeah, of course he bloody was. <laughs> Is that a month and her daughter's missing? Essentially kidnapped? Most parents who lose track of their children call the police immediately because they're worried sick and happy to do whatever to help, but Casey seemed reluctant to involve the police from the start. To add to this feeling of distrust, he also couldn't help but feel that Casey seemed annoyed by the entire investigation. Malik had seen grieving mothers before, and although he knew that everybody responds to stress in different ways, Casey's behavior was anything but normal. As she sat across from him, she crossed her arms, gave short, snappy responses to his questions, and spoke as if she had somewhere better to be. This was concerning to Malik, but he tried to give her the benefit of the doubt. As the detective and Casey were settling into what would become an hours-long conversation, Jerry Demings, the sheriff of Orange County, was busy mobilizing a search party for Kaylee at breakneck speed. He was operating under the assumption that the three-year-old girl was missing and possibly in mortal danger. Because of this, no chances were being taken, and in record time, dozens of investigators and volunteers started cold-calling, giving interviews to the media, and knocking on doors. They didn't have much to go on, but they were hoping that the child's mother would soon be able to point them in the right direction. Unfortunately, Casey was painting a picture that left more questions than answers. Just as she had told police earlier, Casey told Detective Melick that a woman named Zenaida Fernandez-Gonzalez, also known as Zanny the Nanny, had taken Kaylee 31 days earlier and disappeared without a trace. Since the detective was obviously eager to find and speak with Zenaida, he first focused on gathering information about her. Casey said that Zenaida was half black, half Puerto Rican, approximately 25 years old, and been babysitting Kaylee for almost two years. When asked how she had met Zenaida, Casey said that a former co-worker named Jeffrey Hopkins had introduced them after Casey complained to him that she was having trouble finding quality childcare. Yes. 
familiar with that one. It's hard. It's hard. Zenaida had already been babysitting Jeffrey's son, Zach, for a while, and he vouched for her by saying that she would be the perfect fit for the job. According to Casey, she and Jeffrey had both been working as event coordinators at Universal Studios Orlando. Wait. I'm not an expert on American geography, but didn't we just say this was in Orange County, which I've seen that TV show, The O.C., so I know that's in California. And um, isn't all that? I've been to Orlando. Pretty sure that's in Florida, which is on the other side of the country. So did they both move or did they? everyone moved across the country at some point or is there a different Orange County? To make things easier for everyone, she often left Kaylee at Jeffrey's home because that's where Zenaida usually watched Zach. Jeffrey was fine with this arrangement because it allowed him and Casey to carpool to work together and save money on gas. Hoping to speak with this child-abducting babysitter as soon as possible, Melik then asked Casey to provide them with the woman's phone number, but Casey quickly reminded him that it had been disconnected. Melik then informed Casey that even a disconnected phone number could be useful for their investigation. Yeah, what are you doing? If the police ask for the number, just give them the number! They're the police! They've probably got some, like, crazy spy they can use to track the person down. But Casey still refused to provide it. That is mad suspicious. She later claimed that she could not remember the full number off the top of her head. Okay, well, it's your babysitter. It's 2008. Open your phone, go to the old school address book, and find it. Frustrated, Melik then asked how best to contact Jeffrey Hopkins, but Casey said that he had left Universal Studios about nine months ago to live out of state in North Carolina, and wouldn't you know it, he too had recently changed his number. Melik, obviously, wasn't buying this story, but he didn't want to start directly confronting Casey just yet, so he let this obviously bogus story slide. Melik then asked Casey to describe the last time she had seen Kaylee in person, while stressing to her that every little detail mattered and begging for her to be as specific as possible. Malik and Casey then spent the next hour playing a game of cat and mouse, where the mouse doesn't want to tell the cat anything and the cat is constantly asking and clarifying questions to get basic information. During this tedious hour, Malik learns that after Jeffrey and his son moved to North Carolina, Zenaida began working out of her own apartment across town. Five days each week, Casey would pack up Katie's things, drive her to Zenaida's apartment, kiss her child goodbye, and then return roughly nine to ten hours later to retrieve her. This was how the process normally went. However, on June the 14th, the last day that Casey claimed to have seen her daughter in person, she arrived at Zenaida's apartment to find nobody home. At first, Casey wasn't too worried. She said she then spent the rest of the evening driving around town, checking the spots where Zenaida normally took Kaylee, such as the park and the grocery store, before finally accepting that something bad must have happened to them. <laughs> okay. And then you just chill out for a month. What's up? Unsure of what to do next? How are you unsure? You call the police. Casey said that she did what any rational person in her situation would do. She drove to her boyfriend, Tony Lazaro's house, kicked off her shoes, poured herself a stiff drink so that she could relax after a stressful day. What are you up to? For some reason, this admission did not seem completely insane to Casey, nor did the fact that she didn't mention her missing daughter to Lazaro on that night or at any time during the subsequent 31 days that they spent together. Lazaro's not, yo, where's your daughter? Didn't you have a daughter? Like, what? What world do these people live in? Dumbfounded. Yes, indeed. Melech asked Casey who she had told about her daughter's disappearance, and Casey said that she'd briefly re-established contact with Jeffrey Hopkins. She wanted to see if he had a newer number for Zenaida, but he did not. Melech asked Casey if there was anyone in the entire world that he could speak to who would corroborate her story, and Casey said that she had confided in one of her co-workers from Universal Studios, Juliet Lewis. Juliet Lewis? Must have, can you imagine someone comes to you and tells you that story? It's like, yeah, my daughter's been missing for a few days. Be like, excuse me, what's that? Oh my god, what are the police doing? What are you doing? Why are you not enormously distressed? I am dumbfounded. I mean, I don't really believe this little tale. 
So I'm not that dumbfounded. But I'm dumbfounded with how dumb the story is. Finally, with some renewed hope of having someone besides Casey to talk to, Malik asked for Juliet's phone number, but would you believe it if I told you, Casey said that Juliet had also recently changed her number after moving to New York City. As soon as she said it, Casey realized this excuse directly contradicted her initial statement that she and Juliet currently work together, and realizing this, quickly tried to amend her statement to make it more believable. Malik's BS meter was already maxing out before this little slip-up, but the awkward side Silence that followed was enough, was enough for him to directly challenge Casey. Their entire interaction up to this point had been had already caused him to suspect that Casey wasn't being forthright, forthright with him. I wonder what gave him that idea. But now every fiber in his body was screaming that Casey was guilty of something much much worse than not reporting her child missing. Melik asked Casey once again why she did not come to the police sooner, and Casey said, I think part of me was naive enough to think that I could handle this myself, which obviously I couldn't. I was scared that something would happen to her if I notified the authorities or got the media involved. Well, yes, that would be a reasonable assumption. If someone had sent you a letter being like, I demand some money, and if you go to the authorities, I'll kill her. Like, then that's reasonable. But there's no such threat of that. There's no nothing. So... Of course you would go to the authorities. Melek then asked Casey if there was anything untrue about her statement. Casey said that there was not, and another awkward silence once again settled over the room as she and the detective locked eyes. He leaned in and asked Casey point-blank, Did you cause any injury to your child, Kaylee? Immediately, and without hesitation, as if she was expecting this question, Casey replied, No, sir. The truth is somehow stranger than fiction. As Malik and Casey continued to go round and round inside the interrogation room, other investigators were monitoring their strange interaction through CCTV to document to pass on any useful information that could aid in the search for Kaylee Anthony. As they watched, they noted that Casey was answering all the detectives' questions clearly, confidently, and without a single drop of emotion. While it could be argued that she was simply trying to portray herself as a rational, tough-as-nails mother who was facing down an impossible situation, all the investigators could see was a cold and callous mother who did not care less about finding her daughter. I can imagine my if I was in that situation, like being talked to about the police about my missing kid, and I was genuinely like, you better fucking find her and like let's go. I would be I would be I think I'd be relatively collected because I'd like be like the most valuable thing that I can do right now is keep my head straight and give you all of the information that you could possibly need as transparently as possible. Because that is what they need at that moment but if you're like that and then also not giving the information you just look like uh you just look in allegedly guilty as sin don't you you look like that that would be my opinion I've listened to the complete interrogation recording and I fully agree with their assessment. If you ignore the questions that are being asked and only focus on Melek and Casey's tone, it almost sounds like they're having a transactional conversation, like Casey is answering questions as she applies for a bank loan. Melek is far more animated and shows a much wider array of emotions as he practically pleads with Casey at times to help him, but Casey remains unfazed throughout. Since talking was obviously getting them nowhere, Melek then decided that it was time for the two of them to take a quick field trip. From inside his squad car, he followed Casey's directions as she guided him to Zenaida's apartment. When they arrived, he knocked on the woman's door but received no answer. When he looked inside through the window, he noticed that the unit appeared to be completely empty and there were cobwebs that indicated that nobody had lived there for a long time. Casey then led Melek to a townhome community where Zenaida's mother supposedly lived. Somehow, despite claiming to have dropped Kaylee off there multiple times, she was not able to recall either the house number or the home's exact location. Police knocked on three possible homes that Casey pointed out, but none of the residents living there had ever met or seen a woman named Zenaida, her mother, Casey, 
or young Kaylee. Surely when you go up, like, you're obviously you're leading them on a trail, right? But as soon as you pull up outside, you just be like, is the cop should be like, is this the one? And like you've been there multiple times before, like in recent years, you're not going to be like, oh, I don't really remember. And it's like, what are you talking about? Of course you would remember. That's insane. You'd remember if it was years and years ago. Now, with the entire day wasted and still lacking any tangible evidence to hold Casey on, Malik decided to drop his living, breathing headache back off at her parents' house so she could get some rest and he could focus on following up and sorting through all of her obvious lies. When they arrived and Casey went inside, something unexpected happened. George Anthony, Casey's father, who was a former police officer himself, came outside to speak with Malik. He told the detectives that he believed Casey was hiding something. Oh. He stressed to him that he didn't want to turn against his own daughter, but he was more concerned about finding his granddaughter than he was about any legal trouble that Casey might find herself in. Good for you. George urged Melek to not stop pressing Casey for answers, and the detective guaranteed that he would not. The next day, just as he had promised George, Melek and his team continued to search for answers with the only person who might be able to provide any. Casey had given Melek her boss's phone number and the number for Universal Studios the prior day, but when Melek tried to call, it came back as a wrong number. Growing impatient with the constant stonewalling, he picked Casey back up from her parents' house, drove her to the workplace, drove her to her workplace, and demanded she lead him to her boss's office. Casey then marched investigators around the blazing hot property for half an hour before directing them to an office building on the far end of the amusement park. After talking her way through security, Casey led Malik all the way to the back corner of the building. Then, with nowhere left to turn and literally cornered, Casey turned around to face the detective, laughed, and admitted that she no longer worked at Universal Studios. She had been fired two years earlier and had not stepped foot on the property since. Infuriated, Melek placed Casey under arrest for child neglect, making false statements to the police, and obstructing a police investigation. Do you think she's wandering around for like half an hour being like, oh no, I haven't thought of a good answer. I haven't thought of a good solution. Oh god, I guess I just give up. That's that's really that's really bizarre. In his report, Melek wrote, Based on the repetitive lies that the defendant has told, we do not know with whom the child is or even if the child is alive. As I received information and relayed it to the defendant after her arrest, she continued to claim ignorance and at times laughed about the situation. She still failed to show any outward signs of remorse or concern for her missing two-year-old daughter. I request that she be held on a no-bond status until the child is located. Excellent, excellent police work. Casey was then transported back to the Orange County Sheriff's Department, where she would be held until she could go before a judge who would determine bail. As she stewed alone in her cell, the national media was beginning to run her story. George and Cindy Anthony had given multiple interviews where they begged for information, and those interviews were now being run nationally. For a concerned mother, this much publicity would be a dream come true, but for Casey, the woman who didn't even want to involve the police in the first place, it was a nightmare. From inside the jail, she called her mother to confront her about the interviews. While on the phone with her, Casey sounded spiteful, and ends the call by saying that calling her was a total waste. The following day, Detective Malik once again sat Casey down inside an interrogation room and confronted her with everything that he had learned over the past two days. He didn't mince his words, and he told her plainly, I know, and you know, that everything you told me is a lie. After speaking with George Anthony two nights earlier, Malik had returned to the apartment building where Zenaida supposedly lived to speak with multiple residents and a maintenance man, and just as he had suspected, nobody named Zenaida had ever lived there. He also discovered that the entire building was designated for seniors only, which meant that nobody in their 20s would even be allowed to live there. The longer the police searched for Zanny the Nanny, the less likely it became that she existed at all. In fact, most of the people that Casey had mentioned in her initial interviews had been completely fabricated on the spot. You're talking to the police. 
I'm pretty sure there's a big database of people they can go and search and quickly like look at their, you know, where they live, their phone number, what they do for a living. And that exists, right? There must be that, obviously. And like the census or whatever, this sort of stuff. They'll know. They'll know. Of course they're going to find out whether these people are real. What lie do you think you're possibly telling? This included Casey's boss and Juliette Lewis, the co-worker that Casey had supposedly confided in. One person who surprisingly did exist was Jeffrey Hopkins, but the Jeffrey Hopkins that police interviewed was nothing like the man that Casey had described. First, while Jeffrey did claim to know Casey, he told police that the two of them were nothing more than acquaintances and that they had never worked together at Universal Studios. Jeffrey had worked for Universal Studios at one point, but he had been fired in 2002, almost three full years before Casey he was even hired. When police inquired about young Kaylee's whereabouts, Jeffrey revealed that he had never actually met Kaylee Anthony, nor had he ever employed a woman named Zenaida to watch his son Zach. Oh yeah, also Jeffrey didn't have a son named Zach. He didn't have any children at all. How did you think this was going to end, Casey? How long do you think these lies were going to hold up? It's insane. As Mella continued to dig into Casey's time at Universal Studios, he also learned that she had not been a salaried event coordinator as she originally claimed. She'd been a minimum wage kiosk worker who peddled blurry novelty photographs to guests as they exited roller coasters. I'm not shaming anyone who sells novelty photographs for a living. I just think that it's a bit funny that Casey made herself sound like a success when in reality she was unemployed because she couldn't even and hold down a job that's usually associated with lazy teenagers. After he was finished revealing to Casey how utterly screwed she was, Melly <laughs> just letting you know, you know, we all know it's a lie, Casey. Melix then reminded her that his main goal was to bring Kaylee home safely. All else could wait, but they needed to find the missing child whose face was quickly becoming every news station's lead story. He pleaded with Casey to give him information, but she refused to change her story. She doubled down by saying that Zenaida had most likely taken Kaylee to Mexico and defiantly suggested that Melech should leave her alone and start searching there. What, in Mexico? <laughs> What are you going to do? Just fly down your police and be like, hey! I don't think it works like that. The next day, on the 17th of July, 2008, Casey stepped before a judge who stated that she had showed a woeful disregard for the welfare of her child. Based on the report given by Detective Mellick and some questionable samples obtained from the trunk of Casey's car, Judge Stan Strickland said, not a bit of useful information has been provided by Mrs. Anthony to the whereabouts of her daughter. And I would add that the truth of Mrs. Anthony a strangers. Based on his name and this ice-cold diss, I can't help but feel like Judge Strickland may have been a bit of a badass. He also denied Casey's request for bail, which is pretty cool. Yeah, Strickland. Legend. Isn't Strickland the name of the, the principal in Back to the Future? Strickland! Hey, Strickland! Around this time, as the reality of her situation was slowly starting to sink in, Casey decided that it might be best to hire a lawyer. No shit, Casey. It's about time. And this is where Jose Baez, aka Florida Man Esquire, enters our story. Baez is an interesting character who we will discuss more later, but for now, I'll just know that he advised Casey to shut her mouth and stop making his job harder. <laughs> Good lawyering right there. As a result, Casey offered no more help to the Orange County Police. However, she did offer to work with an FBI sketch artist to produce a sketch of a non-existent nanny to aid in their search. She stated that she would only work with the FBI because she no longer trusted Melick or the local police to be honest with her. While well, as rich, the investigation. 
As Casey sat alone inside the jail cell that many hoped would become a permanent home, investigators were working overtime to gather as much evidence against, against her as possible. They began with the car that Cindy, An- Cindy Anthony claimed smelled like a dead body. In the last section, I mentioned some questionable samples that had been discovered inside the trunk of Casey's car, and those samples turned out to be evidence of human decomposition. While searching the trunk, a small circular stain was discovered that was about the size and shape of a toddler's body. Oh, after taking samples from both the trunk carpet and air, the research scientist, Arpad Vas, was able to identify over 30 compounds associated with human decomposition, of which seven would later be confirmed to belong to Kaylee Anthony. Along with these compounds, Vas also discovered something else, chloroform, and a lot of it. Vass would later state that while small amounts of chloroform can be found in nature, there was more chloroform concentrated inside Casey's trunk than it ever observed on 20, over 20 years on the job. It was as if someone had spilled a bottle of chloroform and then attempted to clean it up using more chloroform. In addition to this, they also discovered a single, undyed brown hair that they believed to belong to Kaylee Anthony. Now, normally a single hair inside a car would be insignificant. However, this hair showed signs of something known as root banding. Root banding is the term used to describe the thick black ring that forms around the roots of hair once a person has died. This band is only ever present on hairs that have been collected from corpses. So, if it did belong to Kaylee Anthony, it must have come from her after she was already dead. Unfortunately, forensic tests could not confirm that the hair belonged to Kaylee, but they did prove that it had come from a, from a female member of the Anthony family. Cindy's hair was tested, Casey's hair was tested. Since Cindy's hair was tested, Casey's hair was short, and both Cindy and Casey were still alive, it's safe to assume that this hair must have come from Kaylee. I wouldn't say it's safe to assume, isn't that like a scientific lock? in unless there's some other mysterious member of the family that we don't know and that would be a hell of a coincidence and still there someone's dead that's proof of the dead i mean it's not a dead body but it's essentially as good as right not that a dead body is good but i mean for the purposes of the investigation after collecting and documenting this evidence investigators then turned to casey's friends and family to establish a timeline of her movements and actions on the days leading up to kaylee's disappearance according to casey during the months that her daughter was supposedly missing she had been distraught and frantically searching for any clues as to where a babysitter might have taken her however her friends painted a much different picture of the situation according to them casey had spent the entire month in question partying and celebrating like there was no tomorrow she was shopping clubbing and even got her tattoo that read bella vita which is italian for beautiful life that's sick when investigators questioned tony lazaro the boyfriend that casey had recently moved in with after a fight with her parents he stated that casey seemed completely normal on the night that kaylee first went missing according to lazaro when he asked casey about kaylee's location okay good so he did she said that Kay- kaylee was staying over with the nanny lazaro didn't question this and then the two went to blockbuster to rent a movie not exactly the actions of a frantic mother no and now tony lazaro is kind of like Goody asked, and yet, of course, you'd believe that. But after a month, would you be like, Where's your daughter? Your daughter's still at the nanny. <laughs> Jesus. These accounts of her actions may be damning, but the following, not, apparently not. <laughs> But the following entry from her diary proves that she was not just putting on a brave face for the sake of appearing strong, as she would later claim. It was written sometime between the 16th of June and the 20th of June, the exact same time that Kaylee's disappearance should have been weighing heaviest on her. Quote, I have no regrets, just a bit worried. I just want everything to work out okay. I completely trust my own judgment and know I made the right decision. I just hope that the ends justify the means. I just want to know what the future will hold for me, I guess we will have to see. This is the happiest I have been in a very long time. I hope that my happiness will continue to grow. I've made new friends that I really like. I've surrounded myself with good people. I'm finally happy 
let's just hope it doesn't change. On the opposite page, Gacy wrote disgustingly optimistic quotes like carpe diem, and every day is a brand new beginning. This is just not right. Like, I mean, if, like, we're all thinking, like, if she did this right, this is such a, like, I don't don't even have words. I don't even have words. A media frenzy. While this investigation was happening, Jose Baez was petitioning the court for Casey's release, and although Judge Strickland had originally denied her request a week earlier, Baez was finally able to convince the judge to reconsider, and bail was set at $500,000. Regular people. She, She worked at a kiosk at Universal Studios. Yeah, people don't have 500 grand just lying around for bail, right? Now, even though Casey once believed that her parents would jump at the opportunity to see her release, George and Cindy refused to post bail for her. They believed that time in jail might loosen her lips and encourage her to take this whole situation more seriously. They also had no idea what police had found inside Casey's trunk, so they still thoroughly believed that Kaylee was alive and well. They were also still spending every day in front of television cameras, pleading with the public for information and handing missing persons posters out with Kaylee's face on them. Seeing that her parents were no longer on her side, Casey readied herself for a nice long stay in jail. But then, as if this story couldn't get any stranger, a bounty hunter from Sacramento, Leonard Padilla, flew to Orlando to pay the 10% required to have Casey released. Who is this guy? Why is he entering our story? And you're a bounty hunter, don't you do the opposite of this normally? Padilla did this because he had grown very invested in recovering the missing child after seeing George and Cindy's pleas for help on the nightly news. Unlike George and Cindy, Padilla believed that Casey would be more likely to talk about what happened if she was free. Okay, dude, you're just throwing yourself into someone else's business pretty heavy right now, aren't you? After a bell was posted, Casey somehow convinced her parents to allow her to return home despite their earlier protests, and she did so with an electronic monitor attached to her ankle. Now, also, if a bounty hunter has posted your, ba- your bail, and literally his job is to go after people who skip bail, like, he, you're not going to skip on that guy. He's going to be real motivated to get that 50 grand back. Wait, 500 grand? Is he on the hook for 500 grand? Why do you only have to pay 10%? Bail is so strange. Now, while this might sound like the setup of one of the most awkward situational comedies to ever make daytime television, Casey's freedom would be short-lived as one of her former friends, Amy Huzenga, pressed charges against her for a check that Casey had forged in her name. Nine days after being released, Casey was back behind bars for a second time. Just throwing it a really different grind there, aren't we? This time, investigators offered Casey a deal. They hoped that because she had received a taste of freedom, she'd be more willing to confess if they offered her some sort of guarantee against prosecution. What? Um, okay. This deal involved limited immunity for the charges of providing false statements to law enforcement in exchange for more information about Kaylee's location. Casey refused. Yeah, of course she did. Because she's not worried about the charges of false statements to law enforcement, is she? She's worried about the rather more serious charge. It seems as if everyone had their own ideas about how to make Casey talk, but none of them seemed to work. Her lips were sealed at the advice of her lawyer, and that was probably for the best, because things were about to go from bad to worse for not only Casey, but her entire family. Up until this point, the media coverage of Kaylee's disappearance had been mostly sympathetic. However, around this time, there was an almost instantaneous pivot from heartfelt concern to vicious outrage. 
The shift was spurred by one major event, the public release of both Casey's interrogation footage and the phone calls that had been made between Casey and her parents while she was incarcerated for the first time. This footage made Casey look terrible, as the public was finally able to see exactly what investigators had seen. Oh, when they watched the interrogation footage, they saw an unhelpful, lying, heartless mother. When they listened to the phone calls, they heard a spoiled brat who was nearly screaming at her own parents, who were on the verge of tears. The footage was so damaging to Casey's image that it turned the entire United States against her in a matter of hours. Every news station was running it. Every talking head was ranting about it. Little Kaylee's face was now more famous than it had ever been, and Casey was quickly given the title that would stick with her to this very day the worst mother in America. Because she had predicted this exact reaction, Jose Baez had already petitioned Judge Strickland to suppress this footage because he believed that its release would make finding an impartial jury for Casey's inevitable trial impossible, but Judge Strickland said that he was bound by Florida's very liberal information laws. He claimed that he simply did not have the power to suppress the footage because it was of great public interest. Seeing this shift and worried that police would not be able to protect Casey while she was in jail, George and Cindy's resolve finally softened, and they agreed to post bail for the check fraud, fraud charges so that Casey could be released once again. This move further enraged the public, and protests outside the Anthony's home soon started. They chanted angrily, threw trash at the home, and even threatened to come inside and take care of Casey themselves. Holy sh**. Yeah. These pro the protesters hated Casey for her behavior, but they also hated George and Cindy for standing behind Casey. Over the next several weeks, police had to be dispatched multiple times to contain the crowd, which was constantly on the verge of becoming a mob. Wow, I'm amazed that the police didn't just have to stay there all the time. Due to pressure from both the media and government officials, Casey's charges were soon elevated, and on October the 14th, four months after Kay Kaylee's disappearance, a grand jury indicted Casey for capital murder. She entered a plea of not guilty. As the pressure continued to mount around the entire Anthony family, George hired a public spokesperson to speak to the press on their behalf and a private investigator to follow up on the leads that George believed were not being investigated properly. Larry Garrison was the spokesperson and Dominic Casey was the investigator. Out of the two, Dominic Casey's involvement would turn out to be the more interesting, but we'll get to that in a little while. For now, it's time to get to our story's most tragic moments. Are oh, they? I mean, we know what's coming, right? But they're going to find a body, aren't they? Or finds definitive, more definitive evidence that Kaylee's not alive anymore. On December the 11th, everyone's worst fears were realized when Roy Kronk, a meter reader for the local electric company, made a phone call to the police from a wooded area near the Anthony's home. Kronk said that he had been working that morning and had just stepped into the woods to relieve himself when he noticed a trash bag. Kronk said that he approached the trash bag, peered inside, and saw something that looked like a tiny human skull. Curious, he grabbed a stick, jammed it into the empty eye socket of the skull, lifted it out four feet off the ground, and confirmed that yes, it indeed was a tiny human skull. Shortly after, a forensics team arrived and began pressing this, processing the scene. They found the skull inside the trash bag, along with several other bones, but noted that the majority of the remains had been scattered around the area. It appeared that wild animals had found and disturbed the body long before Roy Kronk had stumbled upon it. Alongside the skull, they also discovered a Winnie the Pooh bedsheet. Okay, so they, they find the body, they DNA test it, and... Okay, so, I don't know, I don't, I don't like processing this. They find the body, and they DNA test it, they know it's Kaylee, they get a warrant for the parents' house, and then they find the bedsheet and the matching stuff and then they also find that searching on the computer someone had looked for chloroform <laughs> what the f i know this was coming but it's just like shit like that winnie the pooh it's just like it's just not not okay in the eyes of the investigators this evidence was beyond damning one month after these discoveries george anthony attempted suicide who was casey anthony 
With doubt no longer circulating about the fate of little Kaylee, police began working to understand the two most important questions in any homicide case. How and why. To learn more about who Casey was and establish a possible motive, police delved deep into her past. And this is what they learned. Casey Anthony was born in Warren, Ohio, on March the 19th, 1986, to parents George and Cindy Anthony. She had one brother, Lee, and by all accounts was described as the cliche, smart, kind, all-American girl. When Casey was young, she and her family relocated to Orlando, Florida, but at the time she was entering high school, the first signs of trouble were already beginning to emerge. To borrow a line from Judge Strickland, the truth and Ms. Anthony are strangers, and it seems that they were as far back as anyone can remember. In 2004, Casey dropped out of high school during the final semester of her senior year and somehow managed to hide her truancy from George and Cindy. Attending classes, Casey spent over four months driving around town, hanging out with older men, and indulging herself however she saw fit. It was a pretty good life for her, until graduation day came. Days before Casey was scheduled to accept her diploma, George and Cindy were told by the school's administration that Casey would not be graduating alongside her classmates, which understandably was a bit of a shock. George and Cindy were furious. However, to avoid embarrassment to keep up appearances around the neighborhood, they threw Casey a graduation party anyway. They invited their neighbors, friends, and everyone else who wasn't aware that Casey had flunked her classes and allowed Casey to parade herself around knowing full well that she had not graduated. Without blaming George and Cindy too much, many of the psychologists who have analyzed this case agree that their enabling behavior was one of the root causes of Casey's inability to accept responsibility. It was also the reason that Casey felt so emboldened by her lies, as she had never actually faced any real consequences for them. Throughout her life, whenever Casey was faced with obstacles, she turned to deception. As a result, she became very good at lying, and most people, especially those who are not trained police detectives, bought into her lies without ever questioning them. Yes, despite what we've seen so far, Casey was an extraordinary liar, and the thing that made her lies so convincing to ordinary people was her willingness to stand by them until the bitter end. Casey never admitted to her lies unless she was faced with undeniable proof and still sometimes not even then. After the staged graduation party were over, her parents noticed something else. Casey's belly was beginning to protrude. They questioned her about it, but Casey, who was apparently unable to think long-term, insisted that she was still a virgin and could not possibly be pregnant. She said that she had just been eating too much and had put on weight as a result. Several months later, and as her stomach, and only her stomach, continued to swell, Casey was cornered by her parents and finally admitted that she was pregnant. When questioned about the father's identity, the virgin Casey said that she had no idea who it could possibly be. Casey's fiancé at the time, Jesse Grund, claimed that the child was his, but though those claims would later be proved false by DNA testing. To this day, we don't know who Kaylee's biological father is. At one point in her life, Casey claimed that the pregnancy was the result of sexual assault, but those claims have never been substantiated. Casey's brother, Lee, has also been floated as a possible father because Casey had once told her friends that Lee had touched her inappropriately as a child, but this too is pure speculation. Jesus, that's some fucking dark-ass speculation. Either way, by this point in her pregnancy, Casey was too far along to realistically consider abortion, but she did decide to place the child up for adoption before its birth. However, her parents, primarily Cindy, convinced her to keep the child. She told Casey if she abandoned her child, they would cut her off financially and forbid her from staying inside the family home. That's intense. It's her decision. And I guess it's your decision to cut her off. But wow, that's a lot. On the 9th of August 2005, Kaylee Marie Anthony was welcomed into the Anthony family. The next few years of Casey and Kaylee's life are relatively mundane. As we discussed, Casey did work for Universal Studios for a while, although she spent much of her time unemployed and relied on money from her parents to make ends meet. They both lived with George and Cindy in Casey's childhood home, and both her parents were very active in caring for and providing for both of them. 
Jesse Grunz also acted as a father figure who was in and out of Kaylee's life at various times throughout his and Casey's relationship. They were engaged for a time but broke things off shortly after Kaylee's birth. Casey was regarded by friends as a loving mother, but one who liked to party and have a good time. Now, armed with a decent understanding of who Casey was, investigators then began piecing together all of the evidence and witness statements in order to form a complete and comprehensive narrative that made sense to them. So now it's time we have to pause for a quick disclaimer. Everything I've presented to you thus far has been independently reported by either the police, the media, or those who knew Casey personally. But as we move forward, we're going to start talking about the part of our story that is heavily disputed. This is because there are multiple accounts of what happens, and unfortunately, we can't even rely on the courts to give us a legally recognized version of events due to the impending not guilty verdict. As a reminder, and to make this perfectly clear, Casey Anthony was found not guilty. So going forward, I'm going to present you with what the police say happened, as this will be the story that the prosecution will attempt to use to score a conviction. I will cover Casey's claims later on during the trial, but for now, please know that the remainder of this video is simply a retelling of the police's own beliefs and is certainly not something that should be considered fact. Also, for full clarity, everything from this point onwards is purely my, the writer's opinion and speculation. It is not established facts, and I do not claim to have any specific or specialized knowledge. And as the presenter of this video, I, Simon, will say the, say the same thing. Anything, as always, is just my, that I'm adding to the script, is just my personal belief and opinion and speculation. So, with that out of the way, this is what the prosecution believes happened. On June the 9th, one week before Kaylee's death, Casey and Cindy got into a heated argument over the direction that Casey's life was headed. Aggravated, Casey responded by storming out of the house with Kaylee in tow. All right, because there's like the triple C's here. Mother and daughter have an argument. Mother takes daughter, uh, granddaughter away. She loaded her daughter into the child seat inside her parents' Pontiac and sped away. Later that same day, Casey and her friend, Amy Huzenga, returned to George and Cindy's home to gather Casey and Kaylee's things. Casey had arranged to stay with Ricardo Morales, an ex-boyfriend of Casey's and one of Kaylee's possible farmers. After retrieving her things, Casey moved in with Ricardo Morales and stayed there for the next week. During this time, George and Cindy called and pleaded with Casey to return home multiple times. However, Casey refused, stating that she was traveling on a business trip for Universal Studios and could not return or she would lose her job. In reality, Casey and Kaylee were in town visiting friends and going on a shopping spree using a credit card that Casey had stolen from Cindy. On June the 16th, Casey brought Kaylee home for a visit. Cindy and Casey swam together in the family pool before both George and Cindy left for work. This is the last time that either George or Cindy whatever see Kaylee alive. That afternoon, as Casey sat home alone inside her parents' house, she began contemplating her life. Casey realized that she was a single mother with no education, no prospects, and no future. She loved to party and hang out with her friends, but she rarely got the chance because the burdens of motherhood were always weighing down on her. That's all that Kaylee was to Casey. She was a burden that Casey had never wanted in the first place. Casey had been forced into motherhood, and she was sick and tired of it. Just a reminder, all police, this is what the police thought and what the prosecution put forward not fact <laughs> it's so it's a story told by the police a story the police believe that evening while george and cindy were away casey searched for how to make chloroform on the family computer using chemicals from around the house to produce it and then she retrieved the roll of duct tape from george's garage then casey placed kaylee in a bed wrapped her in a winnie the pooh bedsheet and held a chloroform soaked rag over her mouth 
until she passed out. Casey then tore off several pieces of duct tape and used them to cover Kaylee's mouth and nose. The little girl died of suffocation as her mother stood over her and watched to ensure that the seal didn't break. Once Casey was sure that Kaylee was dead, she loaded her body, along with a sheet and tape, into three plastic trash bags and placed this bundle inside the trunk of her car. At this point, Casey moved in with her new boyfriend, Tony Lazaro, and told him that Kaylee was now living with her nanny full-time. This is when she wrote the diary entry that we looked at previously. If this is what happened, it's just, it's so disturbing. At some point in the following week, Casey finished what she started by dumping Kaylee's body in the woods near her parents' home. By this point, the smell inside the car was overwhelming, and the chemical runoff from Kaylee's body had seeped through the bags and saturated the carpet of the trunk. She tried to air the car out, but it was too much for her to handle. On June the 27th, Casey abandoned the car with Kaylee's car seat still inside at a check cashing store just outside of Orlando. Tony Lazaro picked her up and noticed the smell, but Casey told him that it was caused by an animal that she had hit earlier in the week. Casey's car was left abandoned in that parking lot until a tow truck eventually impounded it at the request of the store's owner. Casey then spent the next three weeks living the life she'd always dreamed of. She went clubbing, where she was reported seen drinking, dancing, and living life to the fullest. She got the Bella Vita tattoo on her shoulder and even participated in a hot body contest where she posed on stage with other women as men in the audience jeered at them. While all of this was happening, Cindy and George made repeated calls to Casey where they begged to speak with Kaylee. Casey brushed off their requests and told them that she was simply too busy with work and would bring Kaylee for a visit soon. On July the 15th, the full 31 days since Kaylee's death, George and Cindy received a letter from the towing company that had impounded Casey's car. George then paid to have the car released, but as soon as he climbed into the cab, he immediately recognized the strong smell within and called Cindy to tell her what he had found. Yeah, remember, George was a cop. So he's, he knows that smell. Now very concerned, George and Cindy spent the remainder of the day hunting down Amy Hazenga, the girl who had helped Casey move out of the Anthony home, to see if she knew where Casey had gone. To their surprise, Amy told them that she and Casey had had a falling out after Casey forged $700 worth of checks in her name. No longer caring if Casey lived or died, Amy pointed George and Cindy in the direction of Tony Lazaro's apartment. Later that day, they found Casey and Lazaro high on marijuana. They attempted to force Casey to explain her actions and tell them where Kaylee was, but Casey refused. Then, in order to persuade Casey to come home, Cindy threatened to have Casey arrested for stealing her credit card. Casey still refused, and Cindy made two separate phone calls to the police where she stated she wished to have her daughter arrested for fraud. Casey pleaded with Cindy to drop the charges, and Cindy agreed on one condition. Casey admit where Kaylee was. Casey then crafted the fake kidnapping story on the spot and a hysterical Cindy believed her and dialed 911 for a third time. And this is where our story began, oh, so many pages ago. The trial begins. After Larry Garrison took charge of all public relations for the Anthony family, the available details about Casey's life become few and far between. For the most part, she was largely out of the spotlight, save for one time when she did end up pleading guilty to 13 more counts of check fraud and was ordered to pay restitution to her many victims. Two notable things did happen before the trial, and both involved Judge Stan Strickland. First, Strickland announced that he would allow the prosecution to seek the death penalty, and second, he recused himself after evidence surfaced that had leaked information about the case to a blogger named Dave Knechel. In my opinion, this was a less-than-baller move by the judge with a baller name, which resulted in being replaced by Judge Belvin Perry. As the trial date approached, Cindy Anthony also decided to fully stand behind her daughter. It's not known what exactly caused the shift, but whatever it was, it was a dramatic shift. Cindy began making national television appearances where she stressed to the public that Casey was innocent and she would eventually take the stand in her defense. 
On May the 24th, 2011, Casey Anthony's trial began. She was charged with a one count of first-degree murder, one count of aggravated child abuse, a one count of manslaughter of a child, and four counts of providing false information to law enforcement. The jury, which had to be brought in from Pinellas County, an area roughly 100 miles southwest of Orange County, uh, was comprised of five men and seven women. It began as all trials do with opening statements. The prosecution's opening reflected the version of events that we detailed to you in the previous section. It was a simple, elegant explanation that they believed was supported by the facts. But, as we shall soon see, it was not the slam dunk that they were hoping it would be. The defense obviously had an uphill battle, as Casey had spent the prior three years being vilified by the media, and a jury from anywhere would have some high level of bias against her. However, as we all know, the job of a defense attorney is not to prove innocence, as the burden of proof is carried solely by the prosecution. All the defense needed to do was seed enough doubt to sway the jury into returning a verdict of not guilty. To do this, Jose Baez used the tried and true throw someone under the bus strategy, and the person they chose to pin everything on was Casey's own father, George Anthony. Law is fucked up, guys. That is fucked up. It's like all we need to do for one, and I know the innocent till proven, not innocent till proven guilty, uh, beyond all reasonable doubt is super important because it's established in law, at least in most Western countries, that it is better for a guilty person to go free than it is for an innocent person to go to jail. So I get it, but it is up that all the defense has to do is just yeah no it was george it was george i mean it could be probably not but it could be it could be couldn't it that's all they need to do that's right despite cindy now standing fully behind her daughter Myers completely blindsided everyone in the courtroom with this reveal the following narrative which george had only been made aware of days earlier was delivered to the jury who sat silently in utter disbelief the defense claimed that kaylee's death was an accident. In their version of events, Casey was an exhausted single mother who fell asleep with Kaylee in her arms. But when she awoke later that day, Kaylee was missing. She and George then proceeded to search the entire house for Kaylee, but they couldn't find her. When George searched outside, he discovered Kaylee's lifeless body floating in the family swimming pool. They theorized that Kaylee had woken up, slid out from underneath Casey's arms, and wandered out the back door and fallen into the family swimming pool. Uh, okay, but what about the boots? What about the chloroform? What about the Google search? Like, Come on. When Casey came outside, she found George holding Kaylee's limp body in her arms. The girl was blue and cold and obviously dead. Her father had said that there was nothing that anyone could do for her. According to them, when Casey saw that her daughter was dead, George told her that she needed to leave the house and disappear immediately. He told Casey that he would handle everything and to not worry. Casey claims that he was the one who disposed of Kaylee's body and that she never saw her daughter's body again. Wait, so she's on the stand testifying to this being the version of events. George must be like, what the fuck is going on right now? Now, there are several glaring issues with this story that were immediately apparent to Byers, and he um, attempted to address all of them in his opening statement. So let's look at how he answered the jury's questions before they were even asked. First, if everything had happened the way the defense claimed, why would Casey and her father not simply call the police and report it? If Kaylee's death was a true accident and the evidence at the scene corroborated their story, then Casey would not be held responsible for her daughter's death, right? Right. Well, Byers claimed that George was the one to suggest that Casey not call the police, and Casey agreed because George had stressed to her that she would spend the rest of her life in prison for child neglect if she did. Oh, it's a good counter, isn't it? It's a, it's a seed of doubt, isn't it? Oh, my. I'll remind you that George was a former police officer, and in Casey's mind, this would have given an insight into how the police would see Kaylee's death. 
George told Casey that it would be much better for her and the entire family if Kaylee were to simply disappear via kidnapping. But why would the jury believe that Casey would have gone along with this plan? She was an adult and perfectly capable of behaving rationally, right? Well, not according to Byers, who shocked everyone once again by claiming that Casey had been sexually abused by George since she was eight years old. He said that Casey had no choice but to listen to her father because Casey had been trained from an early age to repress and bury her father's secrets. Casey was simply doing what George had trained her to do for her entire life. Covering up Kaylee's death was just the further continuation of the abusive father-daughter relationship that the two shared. George must be like, what the fuck? Poor George, Jesus. I mean, look, I can share my opinion. I don't believe this for a second, bro. Like, that's my opinion of this. The jury, apparently, uh, there was the seated out sign. But, um, yeah. George must be like, what the f*** is happening right now? <laughs> but how would Casey manage to behave normally in the 31 days between her daughter's death and the 911 call that brought reality crashing down on the Anthony family? Unsurprisingly, Byers had an answer for that as well. He said that Casey was used to pretending that everything was normal because she'd been forced to do it her entire life. In his opening statement, Byers said... On June the 16th, 2008, after Kaylee died, Casey did what she'd been doing her entire life, for most of it, hiding her pain. Going into that dark corner and pretending that she does not live in the situation that she is living in. This child, at eight years old, learned to lie immediately. She could be 13 years old, have her father's penis in her mouth, and then go to school and play with the other kids as if nothing had happened. George must be like, what the f*** is happening right now? <laughs> This is so fucked up, bro. Byers said this to the jury as George Anthony sat in the back of the courtroom with his head drooped to one side and his eyes staring at the floor. The allegation that George Anthony sexually abused Casey has never been proven, but that did not stop the defense from claiming that the 31 days that followed Kaylee's the, the 31 days that followed Kaylee's death, the days where Casey partied, took drugs, and entered a beauty contest, resulted from a lifetime of abuse and intentionally denying reality. This opening, which was delivered with with much conviction by Byers, landed on the jury like a bomb. Nobody was expecting Casey to change her story so drastically, and when it happens, not one person could honestly say that they saw it coming. As far as I'm concerned, there is no evidence to support these claims of abuse, and Casey is a known pathological liar whose reputation speaks for itself. Nevertheless, this was the plan that the defense had formulated, and it was a plan that would tear the Anthony family apart. Yeah, no sh**. Oh my lord. Refuting the evidence. Now, in this section of the video, I'm going to provide you with all the relevant evidence and testimony that the prosecution presented and explain how Jose Baez and the rest of Casey's defense team refuted it. Since this section will obviously not be able to cover the entire six-week trial in detail, I'll be glossing over much of the testimony and focusing on the facts. If you're interested in learning more, the entire trial has been uploaded to YouTube via 74 separate videos. So feel free to watch till your heart's content. It's so weird that this is available on YouTube. This feels so dystopian. Like, it's the sort of thing you'd read in, like, like a novel about a scary, just like, George Orwellian sh Also, since there are many revelations throughout the trial, 
This section is not in chronological order, but it is instead presented as a summary. So hold on, because I'm going to be throwing a lot of information at you. Because the prosecution was seeking a conviction for first-degree murder, they set out to prove three things. That Kaylee Anthony's death was a premeditated homicide, that Casey Anthony was the one responsible for her death, and that Casey's motive for killing Kaylee was her own selfish desire to live a child-free lifestyle. To do this, they were relying on two key pieces of evidence and a host of witness testimony. Let's start with the witness testimony, because it's the least relevant. In order to remind the jury how inappropriately Casey behaved after her daughter's death, the prosecution called nine witnesses who each gave their own accounts of her carefree attitude. Among them was Tony Lazaro, Richard Morales, and Jeffrey Hopkins. They, gave, they all gave similar testimonies, and by the end of it, it was hard to not think that Casey was a heartless person. For the most part, the defense ignored these accounts of Casey's behavior because their story had already addressed why Casey was able to pretend everything was normal. Instead, buyers asked each of the witnesses if they thought Casey was a good mother, and to everyone's surprise, they testified that, based on what they'd witnessed while Casey Kaylee was alive, Casey had always been a phenomenal mother. Now let's talk about the prosecution's second goal, establishing that Casey Anthony had been the one who murdered her daughter. This assertion relied on the evidence found inside Casey's car. Because Casey had been seen by friends, family, and security cameras driving the Pontiac in the days following Kaylee's death, it was vital that they prove Kaylee's body was inside the trunk during this time. Proving this would completely discredit the defense's story that George Anthony had been the one to dispose of Kaylee's body. Early in the trial, Arpat Vass, the investigator who ran the tests on the samples from Casey's trunk, pointed toward the compounds that we discussed earlier and said that there was no doubt in his mind that Kaylee's body had been stored inside that trunk for a significant period. He was also permitted to give the jury a rundown of the stages of human decomposition to further drive home how long Kaylee's body must have been in the Pontiac's trunk for those compounds to leach into the fabric of the carpet. This is like, how are they going to defend against this? It's like, it's, this is locking it down. There's human decomposition going on in the trunk of the car. There's a body bin in there. The defense poked holes in Vass's testimony by questioning his testing methodology. They pointed out that the tests that Vass performed were considered non-standard and had never been used as evidence in a courtroom before. They also asserted that the compounds did not necessarily come from a human body and could have instead come from rotten grocery store meat or an old pizza. They, of course, also brought in their own experts to black up these claims. Vass refuted this by saying that the supposed grocery store meat must have been contaminated with bacteria from Kaylee Anthony's body because the test had confirmed that those compounds belonged to her. When asked about other possible sources for the compounds, Vass stated definitively that he could find no other plausible explanation for why they would be present within the trunk unless Kaylee's body had been inside it. So, slam dunk, right? Well, actually not really. As it turns out, a major part of winning a trial is earning the jury's trust. You see, juries are not comprised of forensics experts. They're filled with, oh no, oh no. I get the feeling. I'm just going to speculate here because I feel like we've seen it in a casual criminalist before. That Matt has done a very good job of explaining this to me as a layperson about why this all makes sense. I'm going to guess that Matt's about to tell us that Mr. Vass didn't do as good a job and it all became a bit too sciencey for the jury or something like that there was this happened in a casual criminalist before and it was really sad because it was like the science was so locked down but the scientist was too much of a scientist to explain it to the jury properly i feel like they should just have spokespeople like a lab should have a spokesperson like matt <laughs> it comes in and is like okay look our scientists looked at this and basically this is what's going on okay like i'm not a qualified scientist i've talked to the scientists and this and they've approved what i'm saying and this is what happens judge 
judge, uh, the, 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 the lawyer should, should do that. Surely, come on. You see, juries are not comprised of forensics experts. They're filled with normal people who rely on experts to interpret the test results for them. Because of this, the credibility of an expert's testimony is vital to ensuring that the jury has faith in what the expert is saying. Oh, okay, so it's not going to be got too sciencey. They're going to, like, attack his reputation somehow? To reduce Vass's credibility, Byers attacked his qualifications by telling everybody in the courtroom that Vass was not a chemist because his PhD was in anthropology and not chemistry. Byers also practically laughed at Vass while he was on the stand as he accused him of participating in what was called a fantasy of forensics. After this, Byers called an expert of his own who testified that if the prosecution's theory was correct, there should have been evidence of hundreds or even thousands of blowflies within the trunk as well, but the investigators were only able to confirm the presence of a few blowflies. This did not jive with the prosecution's theory and was seen as a win for the defense. In addition to the chemical compounds, the prosecution also pointed to the hair that had been found inside the trunk. However, because it could not be proven that the hair belonged to Kaylee, the defense argued that it proved absolutely nothing. So, still following the story so far? I hope so, because it's time to talk about the prosecution's final obstacle, proving that Casey's death was a homicide. For this, there were two main pieces of evidence. One was circumstantial, and one was direct. First, the circumstantial. During Vass's testimony, he pointed toward the shockingly high amount of chloroform found inside Casey's trunk, which the prosecution argued would only be present in a case of premeditated murder. However, during cross-examination, the defense argued that the chloroform was a standard chemical found in many household cleaning products, and the pool water could also have caused the test to show positive. Oh, because there's like chlorine in a pool and stuff? But it's chloroform, and it's in the boot of her car, and it's a lot of it. It's like, really? When the prosecution brought up the internet searches, Cindy Anthony testified that she was the one responsible for searching chloroform, but said that the search was the result of an autocorrect mistake while attempting to search for the word chlorophyll. Documents later proved that Cindy was lying and most likely perjured herself because her time cards proved that she was at work when the searches took place. Uh-oh! Lying court's a big no-no! <laughs> It's agreed by most analysts who have studied the case that Cindy's testimony was nothing more than a poorly planned attempt to save her daughter from prison. Um, yeah, but don't perjure yourself. And also, it just, if that's, if, that, I guess this was discovered later, which is a shame, because you could pretty much just write everything else off she's saying as a lie if you're caught in a lie like that, right? Either way, the defense had still managed to come up with an explanation that was at least plausible. Now, with the circumstantial evidence out of the way, let's talk about the most crucial part of the prosecution's case. Oh, I'm sorry. Just let me add there. That's allegedly perjured herself, right? Didn't we say more than likely? Yeah, but that's, that's fine. That's alleged. She obviously, I guess, didn't go to court on a perjury charge. So that's all alleged. Allegedly. You know? So let's talk about the most crucial part of the prosecution's case, the duct tape that had been discovered alongside Kaylee's body. This tape was significant because it was the only piece of evidence that definitively pointed toward murder. Essentially, the prosecution's entire case rested on these four little pieces of tape and where exactly they'd been discovered in relation to Kaylee's body. Without them, there was no murder weapon, and there was nothing else that hinted toward suffocation. In total, there were four square pieces of duct tape found on or around Kaylee's body. The first was attached to the side of her skull, the second and third were floating loosely inside the garbage bag and the fourth was found roughly six feet uh, uh, out and the fourth was found roughly six feet away outside the bag the prosecution focused primarily on the three inside the bag with Kaylee's body. Their main evidence that the tape had been used to end Kaylee's life was the position that her skull was discovered in. You see, when Kaylee's remains were found, they were completely skeletal, which means that there was no soft tissue left on them. This means that the body's structure had completely collapsed as expected, except in one place, the mandible. Kaylee's mandible was discovered in an anatomically correct position, i.e. underneath the maxilla 
as if she was still alive. The prosecution claimed that the only way this placement was possible after so much time was if the duct tape had hot was if duct tape had held her jaw in place during decomposition. They claimed that the three pieces of duct tape found within the bag had inadvertently held her face together as she decomposed. If that explanation sounds a bit flimsy to you, then you're not alone. In order for this to be true, the defense pointed out that Kaylee's skull must have remained undisturbed until the police processed the scene because if it had been moved at all, either by animals, investigators, or the man who discovered the body, then the placement of the tape and mandible would be completely irrelevant. To answer questions about the day Kaylee's body was discovered, Roy Cronk was brought in to testify. He was asked by the defense if he ever touched Kaylee's remains, and Roy told the jury how he had used a stick to pick up Kaylee's skull before dropping it back into the bag. He then apologized on the sand and said that if he had known it was Kaylee's body, he would have just left it and called the police. Byers used this testimony to say that the prosecution's primary evidence for homicide was a contaminated crime scene, and that the fact that the tape had been found on Kaylee's skull was irrelevant. He even asserted that it was possible that someone had intentionally contaminated the crime scene to make the tape's existence within the bag appear more suspicious than it actually was. It's a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Later, Byers also called on Werner Spitz, a celebrity forensic pathologist who had previously testified during the O.J. Simpson trial, and was part of the team that investigated the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Oh my. It's like some uh, pedigree right there. Spitz testified that the tape showed no fingerprints, skin cells, or DNA of any kind that he would expect to see on tape that had been used to cover someone's mouth and nose. Are you doubting the prosecution story? And, well, the jury certainly was. I am doubting it to the point of like, yeah, maybe. There's like enough of that reasonable doubt, isn't there? Just it need, You just need a tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. Later in the trial, the defense also tried to undermine the entire investigation by claiming that the Orlando Police Department had purposefully exaggerated many de details about Kaylee's body in an attempt to stir the emotions of the public and create positive publicity for the department. In this narrative, the police had purposefully taken a tragic accident and warped it into a tale of murder. And with that, we come to the end of the evidence. So, Simon, take a drink from some Coke Zero or something stronger and get ready to hear all the juicy details about George Anthony's supposed involvement in Kaylee Anthony's death. Oh my god, didn't we already cover that? I don't want to hear more about poor George, who I believe like had nothing to do with this. Um, just getting thrown under the bus. Jesus. And I'm not drinking Coke Zero now, I'm just drinking, uh, drinking some coffee, which is nice. I'd like some Coke Zero. I don't think I've got any in my fridge, which is a shame. Understanding George Anthony. Aside from Byers' ability to woo the jury and throw a wrench of reasonable doubt into nearly every part of the prosecution's theory, there was one other thing that helped the defense more than anything. It was George Anthony's numerous lies and the strange behavior that he displayed during the police's initial investigation into Katie's disappearance. Wait, it wasn't George Anthony. It was Casey with her numerous lies and strange behavior. What did George do? Now, Simon, I know what you must be thinking, but I promise you didn't accidentally skip a page somewhere along the way. There's a reason that I haven't mentioned George Anthony's lies yet, and that's because I didn't want to add any more confusion to a timeline that was already becoming difficult to manage. However, the truth is, Casey's not the only liar in the Anthony family, because George shared his fair share of falsehoods along the way as well. Okay, so far I've been like, oh no, George, no, not George. But George has his own problems. Oh no. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I don't really care either way. It's like, let's just find the facts. 
To give you some idea of the type of lies that George told investigators, he once claimed that he followed Casey during the 31 days that Kaylee was missing because he wanted to find his granddaughter. He said that he followed Casey for several miles that day, but she eventually managed to outmaneuver him. At first, police had no reason to doubt his story, but as they dove deeper into the details, they found that George and Casey's phone records made it impossible for this story to be true, as they were both miles apart on the day in question. George had no reason to lie to police about this, and he seemingly only did it to make himself look better by claiming that he never stopped searching for Kaylee. Okay, so that seems like a bizarre, self-aggrandizing, but ultimately harmless lie. There were also several inconsistencies around a set of missing gas cans that the police were never able to fully solve, and an accusation that Casey had stolen the family's SUV at some point, uh, which also turned out to be untrue. In addition to this, George was hiding several secrets, such as a second cell phone, a secret mistress, and a gun that he had purchased to force a confession out of Casey's friends, who he believed knew Kaylee's location. Oh my lord, okay. The second cell phone is a Walter White shit right there. I'm telling you this now, <laughs> although I do have a second cell phone. <laughs> I have this stupid thing. You know when you do the two-factor authentication <laughs> for things? I had it so it just stopped working on uh, one of the services that I use two-factor authentication SMS for because they don't support bloody regular two-factor authentication. And there is a problem with the network that I'm on. And all online, people are like, yeah, um, if you're on this network, in check, Sometimes these just don't come through, and some people just don't get them at all, and no one has bothered to fix this. So I had to get like a pay-as-you-go cell phone with a separate SIM card and a, on a separate network just so I can two-factor this one service. So I have a secret second cell phone like a spy. Except it's not really secret, because I just told you all about it. <laughs> it's just in my old iPhone. <laughs> I'm telling you this now because we're about to talk about the defense's story and all of its logical inconsistencies. We won't be exploring too deep into George Anthony's life, but I did want to make everyone aware that he had plenty of skeletons in his own closet and should not be fully trusted. If you're interested in looking deeper into this case, you should start by researching George Anthony because, like Casey, he's quite a character. During his testimony, George denied hiding Kaylee's body, and since this ran counter to their version of events, the defense needed to paint George in a negative light. And, <laughs> oh boy, did they! They brought up all of the aforementioned inconsistencies, plus his attempted suicide and suicide note, which could have all possibly alluded to his involvement in Kaylee's death. I'm not going to quote from that note out of respect, but I will say that I have read it, and I do not personally believe that the note implicates George Anthony. To me, it reads like it was written by someone who was hurting and looking for a way out after watching his entire life fall apart. During cross-examination, the prosecution confronted George with his statement regarding to the decomposition smell in Casey's trunk. While in front of the jury, George did reaffirm his initial belief that it was human decomposition, but he did not rule out the possibility that the smell could have come from something else. When questioned about the statement that he made to Detective Melech, where he, urged, where he urged police to take a closer look at Casey, George confirmed that this interaction did take place, but stated that at the time, he was a concerned grandfather who knew that his own daughter wasn't being completely honest with him. He claimed that he was running on pure emotion because his entire family was being torn apart. He was also questioned about his alleged sexual abuse of Casey, and he completely denied it. After this, Judge Perry forbid Jose Baez from mentioning George's alleged abuse any further because there simply was no evidence to support it. So, was there any evidence whatsoever that George was involved in Kaylee's death? Well, yes, but it's very, very circumstantial. 
In Baz's opening statement, he told the jury that Anthony's fam- that the Anthony family had owned many pets throughout Casey's childhood. He said that when one of the family pets died, George would handle disposing of the animal's body so Casey would not have to see it. Apparently, according to multiple sources, George would dispose of the deceased family pets by wrapping them in multiple trash bags, taping those bags closed with duct tape, and then tossing them into the same woods where Kaylee's body was found. Why don't you just bury the animals like a normal person? Or take them to like, um, I don't know, like a pet cemetery? Is that a thing? Why are you throwing them in the woods? <laughs> That's weird. Is this proof of anything? No. But it is a chilling coincidence. I'm not even that chilled by it. I think it's more weird that you're doing that, but that's... I mean, it's not that much of a coincidence, in my opinion. But with this out of the way, let me tell you about the problems with the defense's case. First, George Anthony's actions after Kaylee's death do not support this narrative in any way. He pushed hard in the early days of the investigation for Malik to look closer at Casey, which obviously is not something he'd do if he was trying to protect Casey. Also, he would not have made television appearances where he pleaded with the public for answers and claimed that he was not sure of their daughter's involvement in Kaylee's disappearance. It could be argued that George was simply playing the part of a grieving grandfather far better than Casey was capable of playing the part of a grieving mother. But there are other problems with this theory as well. As a former police officer, George was extremely familiar with police procedure and would have known how terrible Casey's kidnapping story would look. He would have known that the police would turn over every stone in their search for Kaylee and that giving the police a list of fake names and disconnected phone numbers just wasn't going to cut it. He would have known that keeping Kaylee's body in the trunk would leave the ample forensic evidence that it did. And finally, if he was the one who disposed of Kaylee's body, dumping it within walking distance of the family home, well, that was a boneheaded move at best. In my opinion, it's an unbelievable move. Like, as in, I don't believe it. These inconsistencies were brought up by the prosecution, but in the end, it simply wasn't enough. Unanswered questions. It's no secret that the only reason we're talking about this case in the first place is because of the impending not guilty verdict. If Casey had been found guilty, her story would be much less noteworthy, and it would have probably already faded from public consciousness. But because the verdict was such a shock and no definitive answers have ever been provided, Kaylee's story continues to live on in the hearts and minds of many internet sleuths and conspiracy theorists. But now that you've heard both sides of the story, the evidence, and many, many tangents, Steady on, Matt. You must be wondering how and why the jury returned the verdict that we've been building toward this entire time. So let's answer that question. Why did the jury acquit Casey Anthony? Well, the answer is actually much simpler than it first seems. Many lawyers who have analyzed this case say the verdict was the result of both a weak prosecution and a strong defense. Many argued that the prosecution overcharged Casey by seeking the death penalty for first-degree murder, and they did this without proper evidence to back it up. Remember, almost everything the prosecution presented was circumstantial and relied heavily on the duct tape suffocation theory. When questions were raised about how exactly Kaylee's body had been found, the jury was left with plenty of reasonable doubt. In short, the prosecution had failed to even prove that Kaylee's death was the result of homicide. The jury didn't need to believe that Casey's story was true, and most of them didn't. All the defense had to do was so reasonable doubt and they succeeded. The jury reasoned that there was simply too much doubt swirling around every aspect of the case to convict anyone. In an interview with ABC News, one juror, Jennifer Ford, said, I did not say she was innocent. I just said there was not enough evidence. If you cannot prove what the crime was, you cannot determine what the punishment should be. Can jurors talk about this stuff afterwards, or is that a British thing? I think that's a British thing. Like, you can't talk about it. Um, I guess in America, I think we talked about this on the OJ case, right? I guess in America, it's totally cool. (laughs) 
Too and G's with ABC News. I mean, this is exactly it. It's just the defense sowed enough seeds of reasonable doubt. The defense sowed enough seeds of reasonable doubt, and that's it. That's all you need. This line is basically ribbed word for word from the defense's closing argument. And the fact that this juror carried that phrase through deliberation and even parroted it to the media days later is a testament to Jose Baez's skills as an attorney. In the years following the trial, Baez has been criticized by many for his unethical practices and unsubstantiated claims during the Casey Anthony trial, but that doesn't change the fact that his methods worked. At the end of the day, when everything is said and done, the key question in this case will never be answered. And that is, how did Kaylee die? It's also, yeah, I mean, if he's not violating any legal things or ethical code of conduct, like bar code of conduct or whatever you call it, his job as a defense attorney is to defend. And that's what he did. That's what he did. Would I feel dirty if I was him and doing it? Allegedly, yes. I'd feel pretty dirty about that. But um, I'd also know it was my job. It has also been reported that he and Casey were engaged in a sexual relationship throughout the trial because Casey could not afford to continue paying for his services. At one point, Byers allegedly cancelled a media appearance that he'd arranged for Casey, and as repayment for not making her speak to the public, he told Casey that she owed him three blowjobs. These allegations came from the Anthony family investigator, Dominic Casey, and have not been proven. Casey and Byers also denied being a relationship at any point, so take this story with a grain of salt. Yeah, that just sounds like, um, speculation. Uh, there's not enough, this is not even circumstantial. On the 5th of July 2011, after approximately 10 full hours of deliberation, the jury returned with a verdict of not guilty for all three felony counts. They did, however, find Casey guilty of the four remaining misdemeanor counts, which were the result of giving false statements to law enforcement. After the verdict was read, the prosecution said that they were flawed, and the public's reaction reflected that. Tensions escalated as word began to spread, and those who had showed up outside the courthouse to celebrate Casey's guilty verdict were both disappointed and immediately angry. The crowd shouted, things like baby murderer and this is just another oj many wore strips of duct tape over their mouths with phrases like she's a murderer and kill casey written on them i can only imagine that the prosecution must have been sweating bullets because having your case compared to the oj simpson trial pretty much guarantees that you have thoroughly stepped in it george and cindy were advised to leave the courtroom before the verdict was read because the police knew that they couldn't guarantee their safety the jurors themselves also feared for their lives as they worried that the public might seek revenge against them as well judge perry agreed with their concerns and ordered that the names of the juror be not released for a full seven days to allow time for tensions to cool after this short period was up several jurors reportedly received everything from simple inquiries about their reasoning to full-blown death threats. Two days after the verdict was read at Casey's sentencing hearing, Judge Perry handed down the maximum possible sentence of four years in prison, one for each misdemeanor offense, but also credited her for time served. When considering the years that she spent waiting for trial, Casey had fulfilled her sentence and thus was scheduled to be released ten days later on July the 17th, 2011. Wow. Wow. One final theory. So, now that we've reached the end of this episode, where exactly does that leave us? Do you believe that Kaylee's death was the result of a tragic accident, or do you lean to a more, a more sinister narrative? Um, I think I've made it clear where I, where I stand. My beliefs, in my opinion, would be, I think that the jury were right because there were enough seeds of doubt sown. But I imagine if you asked that jury if it was a civil case, or if it was like, you're 70% sure? 60% sure? 75, 80, 90? Because that's not enough. But I'd say they probably were. 
but they've got that 10%, that 20% or whatever that is like beyond all reasonable doubt. It's a big barrier to pass. Very interesting. I know I haven't been particularly unbiased throughout this episode, but let's be honest, the case has spawned so many conspiracies since the verdict first dropped that to be very selective with the information that I presented. There is much more to be said and many more questions to be answered about this case, especially since almost everyone involved, including Jose Baez, has released a tell-all book, but those accounts are also pretty untrustworthy. So, is there anyone reputable who might be able to provide some insight? Well, he's not exactly reputable because of all the lies and affairs and such, but there is one important person who we've not heard from. George Anthony. According to George, he believes that Kaylee's death was an accident. However, he obviously does not agree with the drowning in a pool narrative that was presented by the defense. He believes that Kaylee died as the result of an accidental overdose. Let me explain. Katie was a young woman who liked to party, but she was also a single mother with responsibilities. To reconcile those two things, Katie did what some bad mothers do to keep living their lives after their children are born. George says that he believes Katie began dosing Kaylee with small amounts of Xanax to make her sleep so that she could go out and have fun with her friends. When people asked where Kaylee was, Katie would tell them that she was with Zanny the Nanny, which is a common nickname for the drug in this context. Oh my lord. Unfortunately, because the human body quickly builds up a tolerance for Xanax, Casey was forced to give Kaylee larger and larger amounts of the drug to ensure that she slept through the night. This continued until one night in July of 2008 when Casey returned home to find that she had accidentally overdosed Kaylee, causing her to fall asleep and never wake up. Knowing that the police would detect Xanax in her system, Casey panicked, loaded Kaylee's body into the trunk of a Pontiac and left it there for over a week as she purposefully avoided her parents and tried to come up with a believable story. Then once the smell became too much to handle, she dumped the body in the woods near her parents' home because she knew that people rarely used those woods and wanted Kaylee's body to be nearby. Why? That's weird. Because she had already been telling people about her Zanny the Nanny joke for so long, she was forced to come up with an explanation for this, and that inspired the story of Zenaida Fernandez Gonzalez. Is there any proof behind this theory? No, none whatsoever, but I did want to just mention it because we spent the latter half of this video discussing George's possible involvement, so it only seemed fair to hear him out. So I'll ask you again, what do you think? Was Kaylee Anthony's death an accident? Has the media overblown this whole situation? Has the length of this episode caused me to develop carpal tunnel syndrome? Or are my hands supposed to feel numb? <laughs> Leave your answers slash medical diagnoses in the comments below. And as always, thank you for watching. If you enjoy this show, um, if you enjoy this podcast, please leave a review. If you're on YouTube, comment, like, subscribe. See you next time. the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.